1: happy guy Ned he ate a molded pumpkin pie then he thought that he just couldn't die so Ned he laughed so hard
0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-451 of the Run Run Live podcast. Yeah, we're here again. How's everybody doing? Spring has arrived up here in New England, and we will lose the last of the snow today. There's one dirty little pile in the lee of my stone wall in the front lawn that has been tenaciously hanging on. There's Ollie. Ollie. Ollie's mad. He's upset today. He wants to bark at everybody. The weather has been fabulous in these last couple of weeks, up in the 50s, 60s Fahrenheit, what we call mud season up here, quickly followed by allergies and black flies and then settling into mosquitoes. But in all seriousness, it is an interesting thing to watch. The animals know it's spring before we do. Less than a month ago, Less than a month ago, it was snow and single digits and frozen solid, but the birds knew spring was coming. They were out. You could hear them in the morning busying up new nests and beginning the process of raising the next generation. And I was out walking Ollie one morning in the last couple weeks, and it was a warm morning, and I had to pause and marvel at the noise, because... Remember, in the dead of winter, they call it the dead of winter because there's nothing. There's no noise. No animal noises at all. But this time of year, we have in my woods what are known as vernal pools. And that is where the water gathers during the spring melt in these glacial hollows. And they only manifest this time of year. They are ephemeral pools of water. They dry up by late June, typically. But because of their ephemeral nature, they have no fish in them. Because there are no fish, the local amphibians and insects run riot like partiers on South Beach in spring break. I had to stop and listen, because the level of noise coming from the frogs out of this vernal pool was so loud. Where less than 30 days ago, it was frozen solid. So life just arrives this time of year. Life finds a way. We all find a way in the springtime, right? And I'm still laid up with the sore knee. It's been a full four weeks off. I did try a little bit of running, but it it needs more rest. And I do have experience with these things. It's typically a six to eight weeks, unless there's a real problem know it could be six months. I'm okay with that. With the nice days... I wish I could be out in the woods with Ollie, but I have been riding my bike more as the weather improves. It'll take me a couple of weeks to get my bike legs back where it actually becomes exercise for me. And I'm lucky enough to have a lot of experience with both road biking and mountain biking. And I have enough equipment to do both without any expenditure. So in between, I've been doing core workouts and yoga sessions, but I'm still putting on weight and I still feel totally out of shape. Today, we talked to Dylan, who is a writer of young adult fiction, and I ran into Dylan through our friend Anne, who we've had on the podcast before. She's been a longtime friend. Dylan is a runner, and I talked to him about running and writing, two of my favorite topics. And in the back of my mind, I've always wanted to be a writer because I enjoy the process and get great satisfaction from the work. And this has always been true. Even when I was a kid, at one point I was pursuing a journalism degree in college, uh, but realized that wasn't going to provide the standard of living I wanted, so instead I turned to business. And this project of Run, Run, Live actually came from my desire to write again, because the show forces me to write something, right? Forces me to write it down. And I think the lesson here, if there is a lesson, I don't know, is that you can still pursue those things you're passionate about or interested in throughout your life. You can clear a space for whatever that is and still put boiled potatoes on the table. There's always a trade-off. Uh, or you can choose to go in like all in like Dylan and make a career out of it. It's your decision. It's not an either-or decision. It's an either-and decision. Now, let's face it. There's millions of us runners out there who will never win a race, but we still have that passion. We still like to get out and find our own personal edge and drive that satisfaction Uh, my new podcast the after the apocalypse science fiction podcast is letting me play into more science fiction than i have before and i probably won't win a hugo award from it but i'm learning new stuff and i'm enjoying the process and i guess that's the lesson right find a way to explore the things that you might be passionate about There's always a new adventure on the horizon. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort
1: zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength.
0: Okay, let's talk about knee injuries. Knee injuries are one of the most common runner problems. If you think about it, it's hard to imagine running without the knees being involved. Knee injuries are a challenge for runners because, like your ankles or your feet, there's, there, there's a lot going on in the knee. In the knee, you've got the weight-bearing intersection of two major bones. The femur on the top, that's a big bone that tucks into the ball and socket joint on your hip. And then on the bottom, you've got your big tibia and the smaller fibula. And those two things sit on top of each other. So I'm going to stop with the list of piece parts and speak more descriptively now, because remember, I'm not a doctor. You should not take any advice from me. And frankly, I'd rather be interesting than accurate most of the time. (laughs) My point is that these two big weight-bearing bones come together at the knee, and it's not a ball and socket joint like the shoulder or the hip. They just float on top of each other. So how do these bones that have no hard structure, no no structural support, how do they hold together, especially when they're weight-bearing like this? How do they do that in this knee joint? Well, that's what makes the knee so complex. The knee is wired together on all sides by this interconnected series of ligaments, tendons, fascia, and it holds it all together and allows it to work. And the knee gets a lot of force put on it. On the top, you've got those glutes and quads, some of the biggest muscles in your body, the biggest muscles in your body. And on the bottom, you've got the big calf muscles, and these are all attached at different places around the knee, which is cool. But how does it manage all that weight-bearing, the weight-bearing part? Well, it turns out the knee has built-in shock absorbers in the form of cartilage that is between and around the joint to keep the bones from smashing into each other. And... As the cherry on top, there's a little bit of shielding bone plate that floats in front of the joint called the patella that balances and protects that front of that joint. So you can do things like kneel, you know, without impacting the good bits that hold it all together. And this is what, again, makes the knee so complex for running injuries, because any one of these things, the ligaments, the tendons, the fascia, the cartilage, even the bones can get injured. The causes of injury can be imbalances in your system. It can be overuse. It can be impact or just plain old age. So when you hear one of your friends complaining about not being able to run because they have knee issues, it could mean a dozen or so different things. Each of the ligaments, each of the tendons, each of the attach points can be inflamed, right? Or they can tear. Uh, this can be as simple as ITb which you hear a lot especially in women who have wider hips uh, this is tendonitis or drastic like the classic MCL tear you always hear about or or the other one these are uh, crucial medial crucial ligament that you hear in athletes all the time that you tear that that's a big deal I'm gonna stay away from all that stuff and I'm gonna drill down into the cartilage at this point that sounded a little little painful, didn't it? Drill down into the cartilage. Talk a little bit about what's inside the joint. So you've seen these bones. They end in these two lobes. And these two lobes come together in the knee joint. And the medical terms are medial and lateral, but you can think inside and outside, or left and right sides of the joint. In in between these lobes are pieces of spongy cartilage, the shock absorber. These are called uh, the meniscus and the bursa. Now, the meniscus and the bursa, they can tear. There's a whole taxonomy of types and shapes of tears. It can tear on either side, inside or outside the lobe. And what happens when the meniscus tears? It hurts. Think about it. If your job is to be a shock absorber and you're broken, (laughs) any activity that requires use of that shock absorber is going to hurt. So what are the treatment options in here? Well, it depends on the severity of the tear. The first treatment option is typically let it heal. And this, too, is not as simple as it sounds. Rest is important, but because of the type of tissue and the lack of blood flow to this area, it takes a long time to heal. Uh, The standard recommendation for anything in there is six to eight weeks. And you want to let it heal because if you keep using it, you can make it worse. You can develop scar tissue, other permanent chronic problems like arthritis, recovery programs will typically suggest strengthening or rehab exercises to, to help with imbalances and prevent future tears. They may also have active non-weight-bearing activities to keep the blood flowing. It really depends on the tear in the athlete. For more severe cases, they may go in and do that surgery. And you've heard of this surgery. They go in with a scope, and they remove any dangly pieces and stitch up any tears they find. And you've heard of this, right? This is that scoping of the knee. It's quick and easy, and the athlete is typically back on their feet really quickly. The downside to the surgery is that any material removed is not going to grow back. Eventually, the cartilage loss gets to a point where it can't perform its basic shock absorber function and that's pretty much the end game. The other big risk for older athletes is these type of injuries can bring on the onset of arthritis and this is a degeneration of the joint tissue and the bones and it becomes very painful. Then you're looking at having the joint replaced which is typically an end game for athletes as well And I tell you all this because, A, there are a lot of different things that can cause problems in the knee, and you should figure out what specifically that problem is before just throwing your hands up and saying, I have bad knees. Uh, It really helps to be patient. In This is B. That was A. This is B. It really helps to be patient in your recovery from knee issues. The long-term problems that you can cause by rushing back are bad enough that you can afford to give it a couple more weeks to heal. And now for today's featured interview. So Dylan, give us the 200
1: words on uh, who you are and what you do and, and why we're talking. Sure. So I am a runner and a writer and basically just your ordinary 30-something trying to navigate life in the real world. And one of the things that has always really kept me grounded and has kept me focused on goals has been running. I took up running in college and it's really sustained me and taught me some discipline and really transformed my life. And it's what really helped me make the leap into being a full-time freelance journalist and to pursue my dream of publishing a novel. I talk to folks who are writers and I see them out there in
0: the world. And it seems like a really hard row to hoe being a full-time writer. It seems like one of those things like being a movie star. Where there's 0.0001% who do really well and everybody else starves.
1: I've done fairly well for myself and I think that I am very grateful for that. I think that there's all kinds of molds for being a writer. And I think that if somebody were to say to me, I think that when we have it in our head that making a career in any sort of artistic field, you need to be, quote unquote, rich and famous in order to have made it. But as long as you sort of learn how to take the work that's available to you, it can be lucrative and it's easy to find success. I think I've been very fortunate to have a strong network where I've been able to go out and find writing jobs that have sustained me. And I like being able to dabble in a little bit of everything. Like one day I wake up and I'm writing a health feature. And then the next day I'm blogging for a small business. And then the next day I am interviewing teenagers about their school project that they're working on and writing an article about that. And There's just like something new every day. I think that writing really helps you take a much more lively and passionate perspective on the world around you.
0: It gives you a um, construct to organize your thoughts. And that's the interconnection I find with running, especially when I used to run without the headphones back before we had headphones. You would find these stories or these phrases or these things just falling into place while you're out on a run.
1: That's one of the things that's so great about running. And I do a little bit of both. I will do those runs where I go out and I'm just on autopilot and I don't have to think about all the stuff in my day-to-day that's stressing me out. I also have those days where I go out and I do my best thinking and I get all of my thoughts in order. And I like listening to music and listening to podcasts and stuff like that. And those will usually stimulate the thinking. But Mm -hmm. there's definitely days that I go out and I, I just need to get my head in order. (laughs) We all deal with so many thoughts going through our head every minute of every day. Sometimes you just need that chance to go out there and and reflect and meditate in motion.
0: Yeah, motion meditation. I think that's the differentiator between a professional there in in the writing world is your practice and your execution, right? Because everybody has a good idea every now and then, but it's Mm -hmm. being able to show up on those days when you don't have a good idea or you only have half a good idea and turn that into something, right?
1: Well, and that's something that you learn from running, that with running, there might be some days that you don't feel like going out there. But you know that once you get your body moving, you'll feel better about it. There will be some days where it's hard, and then it's just not coming as easily. But you got to keep putting one foot in front of the other until you reach the finish line. And I think it's the same thing with writing, that there are some days that I just don't feel like, going and sitting down at my desk, but that's not an excuse. I still got to follow through. I still got to keep trying, keep working at it until I reach the finish
0: line. Yeah. And it's the, if you draw that metaphor out, it's the same thing you find with running is once you show up, sometimes you have your best output, right? Yeah. Even though you didn't thought you were having, going to have a crappy day. Exactly. So it, it really is putting the shoes on and going out the door and letting it happen. Right?
1: Yeah, very that's,
0: much so. That's great. So what's your running history? Your you said you're pretty uh, enthusiastic.
1: I actually started running in college just because I was frustrated and stressed out and needed a way of coping with that. Discovered that I really loved it. One thing led to another where I went from running three miles a day to by the end of college, I was doing nine or 10 miles a day, something like that. And over the last few years, I have started registering for marathons, and ultra marathons, and pursuing those adventures. I guess if I'm going to delve into it really in depth, I will say that when I started running in college, what really spoke to me and what really made it special was that running made me realize that I was stronger and more capable than I ever would have given myself credit for. I was never an athletic kid. I was never somebody who really cared about fitness or really kind of taking care of myself. And when I went out running, it was something that gave structure to my day and made me realize that when I was disciplined like this, I could start working toward goals that I had in the back of my head. I was at the community college and I was planning to transfer to a four-year school, but I really didn't have any sort of like major plan of what I wanted to do. And as soon as I started running, Everything just sort of started to fall into place. And that's really the way that it's been throughout my adult life post-college is I'm able to say like, hey, when I go out running in the morning and I get my miles done, that's my chance to get my blood flowing, to get myself energized for the day. And it's what really keeps me grounded and what keeps me balanced. And then it's also been a great chance for me to challenge myself with races and marathons and opportunities to go out there and force myself outside my comfort zone because i think that if we stay in our comfort zone whether that's a whether that's in terms of fitness or whether that's in terms of our professional lives we're never going to grow we're never going to be able to discover what we can do yeah, it
0: applies laterally. It's not always. People say, "Well, I ran a ten k. Now I have to run a marathon. Now I have to run an ultra marathon." And it's lateral as well. You go to different thing things that are outside your comfort zone aren't necessarily always the next longest thing. It could be something lateral, and that's true with your career as well, right? So. Yeah. There's always something you can learn. And there's oh, always something you know nothing about you can impact. And I get the same thing as you did when I started running later in life and, and started running Boston was that, that epiphany that, wait, I can do this hard thing, right? And the reason yeah. I can do this hard thing is because there's a plan. And if I follow the plan, I end up with the outcome. I wonder right. what else I could apply that metaphor
1: to, right? And it turns out you can apply that metaphor to anything. Exactly. Exactly. And that you have to follow through on your plan. It's not like you come up with a plan and then halfway through you go, eh, you know what? I didn't really want to do this anyway. And I know that for me, it's those challenges that are really hard that keep life interesting. This past summer, I did my first 24 hour, it was a virtual challenge because of the pandemic and we're not able to have any of these in-person events and and all that stuff. But It was a virtual challenge. It was uh, 24 hours, and you had to run eight miles every four hours, six times throughout a one-day period. And it was grueling. It was very difficult. But what I loved about it was that even though physically I felt beat up and really worn down, mentally and emotionally, I felt better than I had Since the pandemic was declared, and it was because I was doing something different, something to force myself outside of the regular routine. Yeah, and that was exciting. That was awesome for me. I was thinking about that this
0: morning and this week, uh, where I'm in a point in my life where I'm in a job that's really busy right now. Uh A lot of the stuff is task based. And I'm like, besides the fact that that's not a real good use of my skill set, but the answer to task-based stuff is to organize it and do it as a task-based work. And habits are one of the tools you use to make task-based stuff just go, right? Yeah. I get up, I brush my teeth, I do this, I do this. You establish habits that help you do it without thinking about it. Then I was thinking about that today. It's like, hey, that's an awful way to live your life. You yeah. just habitize everything. So you're going through life like a zombie. That's ridiculous, right?
1: Yeah. And I think that it's very easy for all of us to do that these days because, one, I'm just a very routine-oriented person in general. But when we're all working from home and when there's really nothing out there and nothing available for us to go out and do in person, it's very easy for us to just fall into this habit of the same thing every single day around the house.
0: So you're um, writing uh, young adult Fantasy fiction right now. Yes. Have you written any characters who are runners? You know what? I haven't. And that's actually- Have you written any
1: characters that are running from something? Yes. In fact, my first book that came out in 2019, The Purple Bird, actually opens with my protagonist running away from something. It establishes in there that as the reader, you don't know right away what he's running from or why he's so scared. Yeah. Um, but he's running and he is terrified. And I make mention of the fact that his awkward, unathletic body just can't move as fast as his fear is, is telling him to go. And he just feels very pathetic and very out of his element. By the climax of the book, by the final chapter, he then has to go up against what he was running from in the first chapter. But it's a little bit different this time. Instead of running away, he runs toward it, and he does have a stronger sense of self because of the adventures that he's been. Yeah, in. use that as part of so the character. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So yeah. I remember reading a Kuntz novel once that started with a chase scene. Of course, that uh, poor character didn't make out so well. But I always enjoy it when they have a uh, from the viewpoint of the person who's running in a novel, just to to see if they get it right.
1: Yeah, as far as what goes through your head, what, how it feels, you can always tell sort of when the writer themselves is a book.
0: Yeah, because it's, it's really hard. If you look at some of the stuff, you're talking about your 24-hour race, right? Right. This is a transformational event for you, right? Yeah. Then you say, okay, what's the movie treatment for that? It's awful right? You got a camera trained on some guy running in circles. It's awful. There's no entertainment value at all. But inside your head, there's this great Leviathan struggle. Uh (laughs) Oh, God. I think probably Murakami is the only one who's ever come close to
1: capturing it. Well, I think that Seeking out those daily adventures, seeking out those challenges are really good for us as writers and as creative types. Because here I am living in the suburbs and I'm not going up against fire-breathing dragons like some of the characters in my fiction writing. So if I'm going to really understand my character's mindset, like how do I overcome challenges and how do I force myself to grow... The closest I can come to doing that is going out and running an ultra marathon and overcoming that challenge that I think is going to help me relate to some of these fantasy adventures that I'm writing about in a way that I wouldn't if I just sat around the house all day.
0: Yeah, that's your version of slaying the dragon. Right, exactly. Huh, that's interesting. So we were talking about this a little bit before, but what are the, like the top three things that make a, a young adult fantasy fiction? successful. And I, you can define successful any way you want.
1: I think that first and foremost, my definition of literary success would be resonating with your reader. And in the case of YA, resonating with your teenage readers, your adolescent readers. A little bit of money is always nice. But I think that most writers will agree that that having a teenager out there who says, like, this book really transformed my life or me love reading again, that's really your big success. And I think that what makes YA fiction successful is when, when your readers can see a reflection of themselves in the characters, can understand how these characters learn resilience and learn self-worth by overcoming challenges. And usually in order to convey that message as the writer, as the storyteller, you're creating a world in which you have teen protagonists where adults are really useless and they can't go to the adults to solve their problems for them. They have to go out and solve the problem themselves and ultimately become stronger, more competent individuals because of it. So I think that in order to do that, you always need to have very relatable characters. You need to have very relatable problems. And I guess relatable characters is number one. Relatable problems is number two. And then I think that that theme of resilience and of overcoming adversity really needs to be number three.
0: Yeah. So it's like the hero's journey. Yeah, right? exactly. Very much so. With some high stakes. Yes. I always make fun of my wife when she's watching TV. I go, Do you want to know how this is going to end? She's like, How, how can you tell me how this is going to end? You've only seen the first five minutes. I go, well, I know right. exactly how it's going to end. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
0: you know what's going to happen
1: next? And then I know how it's going to get resolved. Right? Yeah. Very much there's so. only six story forms in the whole world. Right. But then as soon as somebody subverts expectations, I'm either mind blown and I love it or yeah. I get frustrated because I'm like, no, that's not the way it's supposed to end. No, I do like that when somebody goes, aha,
0: and pulls yeah. the rug up from under you. That's, exactly. That's always good. Right. That's always good the uh, little bit of surprise there. So what do you got for big plans for when they start letting us back out in the roads and the trails? So what's my your bucket three, list? You're only my, 30
1: something. You ne- have a bucket list? Well, so in the immediate future, I would say that bucket list would be an in-person ultra marathon. I want to do a 50 miler or a 100 miler. I want to do like a tough mutter or an obstacle challenge of some sort. And I want to do a triathlon. So those are my three. And then I think that long-term I want to do the Dopey Challenge at Disney World, which is where they Mm. make you do like a 10K half marathon, 30K full marathon all one day after another in Disney World, which I've never been to Disney World. So like I'd love to run a marathon through there. I want to get to Boston, do the Boston Marathon if I can qualify. And this is not running related, but it's crazy challenge related. I want to do... The Maryland Polar Bear Plunge, I want to be a super plunger, which is where you have to plunge into the water every hour for 24 hours. That's Um, interesting. I never heard of that. Yeah, I do the Polar Bear Plunge every year to raise money for Special Olympics Maryland. And usually once is enough, just jumping into that 30 degree water in the middle of January for a good cause once is enough, but I'm like, you know what, if I can raise a ton of money and follow through on the challenge of jumping into the Chesapeake Bay every hour around the clock, yeah, it's something I got to do at least once. Right. That
0: sounds crazy. Yeah. yeah. That, that's a good one. I like that one.
1: That's yeah. One. I'm although, always, up,
0: although, um, ice plunging now is uh de rigueur, right? It's everybody's doing that. Everybody. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, people have ice baths in their house and they do it every morning.
1: Right. Well, doing it every morning is one thing doing it every hour around the clock is another but I don't know I, I like doing crazy stuff because I feel like it keeps life interesting
0: <laughs> that is true that's lateral versus just going longer right right exactly so yeah that's good yeah. stuff what do you got coming up? tell us um, we'll we'll move towards the exit here because we only got a couple of minutes but what you got coming up sure in so, terms of your work and where can people find you
1: I'm actually working on a couple of manuscripts right now. One, I'm working on building out the Purple Bird into a series. So I'm, I've got the sequel in the works right now. I've also got another YA fantasy that's unrelated that's titled The Tide and the Stars. I'm working on that right now. And then I'm working on a running memoir as well. So if people want to sort of follow my running adventures or my writing adventures, if they like geeky fantasy stuff as well as challenging outdoor adventures... They can hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at writing, or uh, find my website at dylanroachwriter.com.
0: What was that last one? You said it kind of fast.
1: Oh, it was dylanroachwriter.com.
0: D- Dylan Roach Writer. So yep. uh, Dylan with a Y. Roach is R O A C H? R O C H E.
1: R O C H E. R O C H E. Right. Got to get that right. Yeah. D Y L A N R O C H E and then writer w-r-i-t-e-r and then my twitter and instagram handle at is at dylan d-y-l-a-n-i-s-w-r-i-t-i-g did i spell writing correctly right there i don't know it's always hard for me to like you should be able to spell writing right like so dylan is writing like i can always spell that out but like spelling it off the top of my head i'm like having trouble visualizing all right it. so
0: so i gotta go jump to another call but uh so you like the apocalypse uh i'm, podcast? I'm loving it big time what's your yeah. favorite character
1: there's only, only three so far so so i'm only on episode four or five i think have okay he, so
0: there's two characters
1: okay have you named our protagonist yet because i'm no. really into him i think no, he's,
0: he's awesome I'm, i i probably won't ever name him it's okay kind of like the road i know. love
1: that yeah. It always means so much more when the protagonist doesn't have a name, yeah. but I'm liking him a lot. I love that you made him a runner. I love that he's a runner and all that comes along with that. I also love that he's feeling a little morally gray, which yeah. is to be expected when yeah. you're trying to stave out an existence. Following yeah. the
0: Apocalypse. yep, That's the arc, right? We got to take him from there to whatever's at the other side. Right? Exactly. So. Yeah. All right. I got to go. Okay. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Great to talk to you. We'll talk some more. All right, perfect.
1: Sometimes it takes a third
0: party to tell us what we already know. All right, my friends, let's talk about robots. (laughs) In my continuing educational series on how to explain technology advantages to your mom, I present an update on robotics. So let's start with the most important question. Why do you care? Well, you care about robots because A, there is a convergence of market forces that is producing a big need for robotic automation. And B, there is a convergence of technologies that is enabling robots to do things they could never do before. And you care because as these two forces, the supply and the demand, converge, you are going to see a massive adoption of robotic automation over the next few years into activities and services that will directly affect you. So first, let's talk about those market forces. Most obvious to you will be the fact that there is still a lot of manual labor everywhere. People still do a lot of things they don't really want to do. And businesses pay people to do things that aren't really value-added. And this creates pressure on businesses to automate. This is the demand side of this convergence. Economic pressure to automate. Robots will allow the reduction or elimination of wasted time. So ironically, little, little side note here, ironically the new e-commerce world increases the need for human intervention, while at the same time increasing the economic pressure to automate. Because with e-commerce companies, they're pushed to deliver products customized specifically to a consumer in small quantities with a very rapid response time, i.e. you get your pair of designer jeans specifically tailored to you, and you get them tomorrow. How does the company manage that? Well, without automation, the only way to manage that is to have more humans involved. But with robotic automation, you can get that fast, specific, low-volume service without ballooning your direct labor cost. So I'm sure you've all seen the dire warnings about driver shortages and warehouse labor shortages and all the other flavors of labor shortages across industries. You've also seen government policy actions to drive up base pay rates. And all these economic forces create fertile ground for automation, for robots. And remember, robots don't sleep. They don't ask for a raise. They don't take breaks, and they don't get sick. So why haven't companies just gone ahead and automated everything already? That's a very good question. And the answer to that question is the other side of the convergence, the supply side. Up until fairly recently, the automation was very expensive and not very smart. Let's take a simple task in a warehouse, which I'm familiar with. So you you have something you need out in the warehouse. So you ask someone to walk out into the warehouse, find this thing, reach into the box, grab the item, and put it into a tote. Simple, right? That's a simple action. Well, not really. How do we know where to go in the warehouse to get the box? How do we locate that particular box on the shelf? How do we Reach in and grab the right item and put it in a tote. Think about all the processing and mechanical movements involved. What happens if the box is moved by four inches to the left of where we thought it was? What's the difference between picking up a tube of toothpaste or a fuzzy bunny? Up until recently, robots could only do simple X, Y, and Z coordinate things. Any variant from that couldn't be handled, had to be specifically programmed. Every variant had to be specifically programmed. So what's changed? A couple things, and these are the technological advances. Vision systems have been improving in capability and coming down in cost at an exponential rate. A vision system is a fancy word for camera. So think about what your eyes and your brain do when finding that box and looking inside. All of that recognition and calculation of billions of data points, that's what robots are starting to get very good at, those vision systems, and they're starting to get very inexpensive. The same is true for the tactile side of the robot, the reaching and touching and sensing in coordination with the vision systems. These systems are likewise getting smarter and cheaper. And finally, there's another type of vision, and this is the ability to know where they are and navigate around without any discrete tether, and this is known as autonomous movement and this is also getting much smarter and much cheaper. This autonomous movement is typically accomplished using what's known as lidar, which stands for lasers. Uh, and this part of the th- this is all part of that autonomous vehicle stuff you're hearing about. Lidar shoots out 3D lasers and then sees what they bounce off of. And combined with vision systems, this is how the robots now know where they are, and they can see what their surroundings are. The robots know where they are. They can see what they're doing. As with almost everything these days, we then pour on the secret sauce of artificial intelligence, and the robots can learn to do things that have always been extra hard to program. Remember I said you have to program all those little variants in? You don't have to do that anymore. Let's say the example of what's the difference between a tube of toothpaste and a fuzzy bunny. Given enough data about toothpaste tubes and fuzzy bunnies, the robots eventually learn to do everything, as fast and as well as humans. Now, for those of you expecting the science fiction type humanoid robots, you're probably going to be disappointed for a few more decades... This would require what's known as a general AI, and I don't expect uh, that I have the expertise or the desire to wade into that argument. You can call Elon Musk if you want to learn more about general AIs. These new robots that we're going to have in the next few decades will be specific to specific manual tasks That could never be done by robots before because they were, A, too expensive, and B, not smart enough. That's all changing right now. And part of what is holding them back is that humans are still relatively cheap to get for these complex tasks. Really good at these complex tasks. Sewing lingerie. Butchering chickens. Picking fuzzy bunnies out of boxes. These are all highly complex tasks that you can get someone to do for you at minimum wage or ship offshore where it's even cheaper. But that inflection point is coming. The robots, they have a beachhead or beachheads in more expensive labor tasks. And as they get a few successes under their metal belts, they will work their way down the labor ladder. And you can make the argument that they are going to eliminate manual jobs. You can make the argument that these are crappy jobs to begin with. But in my experience, every crappy job has someone who needs it. You can make the argument that they will create new jobs and better jobs, as every previous technology shift has done. You can make the argument that it will make the world a better place in general to automate all this stuff. Maybe the emergence of the general AI in a couple decades will figure all that out for us. But I'm not here today to argue about labor policy. I'm here to tell you that there are cool things going on in robotics right now. So put aside your biases of R2-D2 and all the other robots that look like humans. That's not the cool stuff. The new robots will look very industrial, but they will be able to do hard things like pick strawberries and care for patients. And that should make all our lives better and fuller. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have what? Roboticized, limped, written through the end of episode 4-451 of the Run Run Live podcast? Whatever. Here we are. And like I said earlier, I'm still nursing a sore knee. I made an appointment to take some pictures. See, I'm not anti-doctor. I'm pro-doctor. We'll see what's going on in there. With knowledge comes power. The snow is, is gone, and that makes Ollie sad, because one of his favorite things was to pee in the snow. It's like one of those fancy restaurants where they put shaved ice in the urinals. He wanders around the front yard looking for it, can't find it. He's very sad. And a shout-out to our friend Tim, who's embarking on the Appalachian Trail next week. That's a cool adventure, and I can tell he's excited about it. I will tell you a story about the last time I had a knee problem. I think it was 2004. You may not have heard this story because that is pre-podcast, unless you were reading my blog at the time. I used to have an office in Quebec City, Canada, and I used to drive up there because it was easier than flying up there. I think it was the end of the summer, if I remember correctly. I can't be sure, but he was just a puppy, maybe nine months old. I was only a few years into serious running. I had spent a couple of years, uh, 2001, 2002, with Achilles problems, but I had sorted that out, and I was in a comeback of sort, running very well, lined up to requalify, and then one morning... After rushing through my run, jumping into the shower, I headed out as usual in a rush, and a few aggressive mosquitoes got into the truck with me. As I was leaving my driveway and my neighborhood, I was swatting at these mosquitoes, and I took my eyes off the road, and I ran into a telephone pole less than a quarter mile from my house. Yes, I did. Low speed. But enough to total my truck. I have my seatbelt on, but I smashed my knee into the dashboard, among other things. And no one believed the mosquito story, by the way. They figured I was on the phone or eating something or whatever, right? But I sorted it out and I went on with my trip as I had planned. But there was something not quite right in the in the right knee. And a visit to the doctor confirmed that I had broken the end of the patella, that little bone that floats on the front. And I was off my feet for the better part of six months. And I remember returning to running with Buddy in the trails behind my house, overweight and out of shape. I remember those first few runs where the dog would literally laugh at me, laugh at my slow progress. And I would tell him to enjoy it because someday... I'll still be running, dog, when you're gone. And it turns out I was right. I slowly and then more rapidly got back into shape through training and racing. And eventually I requalified that fall and ran the next year's Boston. I lost some speed in that layoff that I would never get back. But I found some new alternatives, some new adventures in trail running, mountain running, ultra running, triathlons, and all that stuff enriched my life. And after a few years, a few years later, I found you folks as well. And that kicked off a whole new epic of adventures. And I'm going to believe that I'm in that same place today. That in two months, or six months, (laughs) I'll be climbing back out to new adventures. New people, new things. And that's what I'm going to focus on. New opportunities, new adventures. And that's what you should focus on as well. And I'll see you out there.
1: And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. With robotic automation, you can get that path blablabla.